Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Good morning. Welcome. Please uh, lift up, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Jesus, all the glory. 
Well, good morning, OVBC family and friends, and thank you for joining us today as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Luke, a fitting substitute. Again, we're in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And so far in our study of chapter 4, we have considered three things about the temptation of Christ. The first is that God is sovereign over temptation and testings, and they serve his purposes. Testings are designed by God to strengthen our character and to draw us closer to himself, while temptations are designed by Satan to destroy our character and to draw us away from God. Secondly, we learn that the devil's method of operation is ancient but yet predictable. His strategy is to offer us false promises and shortcuts in order to satisfy our appetites, our ambition, and our need for acknowledgement or acceptance. Then thirdly, last week, we learned that Jesus resists uh, the devil's temptations through the filling of the Spirit, the correct use of Scripture, and submitting to God's plan. And this week, we're going to consider the fourth and final slice of the apple as we consider a few questions about the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this portion of Scripture. Open up our minds and hearts to receive what you have for us. Uh, Give us understanding, and may we respond to the Spirit's work. We thank you so much for this time. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, as we come to the end of this passage, the temptation of Christ... We are left with some lingering questions that we want to try to address this morning. Questions such as, was Jesus able to sin? Were the temptations real? Why was Jesus tempted? And how does this then all apply to you and I? You know, the latest findings from the American Worldview Inventory 2020, it's a a survey, show that some 44% of American believers think that Jesus sinned. Did you get that? Once again, it shows that some 44% of American believers believe that Jesus sinned while here on earth. Now that's astonishing and shocking to me. It shows that there are too many people who profess Christ, do not affirm what Scripture affirms. They do not have a good biblical base of knowledge about the person and work of Jesus. Maybe there are some listening here this morning that believe in the same way. You're part of that 44% percent. If so, it's important for all of us to consider this passage of Jesus' temptation to understand what Scripture teaches. In other words, you and I need to affirm what Scripture affirms. There are going to be many times that understanding Scripture can be difficult. And we want all the questions answered, right? We want to be satisfied. We want to know all things. But there are going to be many things that we're not going to understand or comprehend fully on this side of heaven. But yet what we can do is affirm what Scripture affirms. And when we do that and we understand that and we trust that, then we can go more in answering or understanding questions that we do not understand. So let's look at first about Jesus. Three things that Scripture clearly affirms. 
First, it affirms that Jesus, as the Son of God, cannot be tempted with evil. Jesus, as the Son of God, cannot be tempted with evil. Luke has already made it clear that Jesus was the Son of God. The angel Gabriel pronounces in Luke chapter 1, verse 31 and 32, to Mary, that she will conceive in her womb and bear a son. He goes on to say, you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He would then go on to proclaim in verse 35 that the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. At his baptism, God the Father proclaimed, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, you and I must affirm the words of James, who writes that God cannot be tempted with evil. No, God is pure. He is holy. He is undefiled. He is perfect in all of his attributes. The second thing that Scripture affirms is that Jesus, as the Son of Man, in his humanity, never sinned. Scripture tells us that Jesus was without sin and one who knew no sin. Scripture testifies, or Jesus testifies, that I always do the things that are pleasing to him, speaking of the Father. And he would one day question his accusers, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, which one of you convicts me of sin? And there was silence, for there was none. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth that for our sake... God made him, Jesus, to be sin. Not that he sinned, but he made him to be sin, a representative of sin who knew no sin. The Apostle Peter in his first letter remarks that Jesus committed no sin, neither was the seed found in his mouth. John MacArthur notes that Christ was not susceptible to the weaknesses of the flesh as you and I are. The writer of Hebrews proclaims of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, that it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest seeking of Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So then thirdly, even though Jesus, Son of God, cannot be tempted with evil, and as the Son of Man, he never sinned, we must also affirm what Scripture says that Jesus' temptations were real. The provision, the, prom- the power, the proof, all those promises, they were real. Looking back at Luke chapter 4, we read that Jesus had gone without food for 40 days. And by this time, he would have been starving, needing food not only for appetite, but just for his own survival. His need and desire for provision was high, and he had the power to turn those stones into bread to satisfy his appetite. And so were the other two temptations. They were real offers, shortcuts to the promises of God. One of the editors of the MacArthur Bible Doctrine, it's a systematic theology, I would recommend it to all of you, MacArthur's Bible Doctrine. He writes that even though Jesus could not sin, the temptations he faced were genuine. Their reality did not depend on his ability to respond. Indeed, since he never yielded to them, he endured their full force. The temptations of Jesus were more real and more powerful than any other human being. And give you an illustration of that. You think of a weightlifter who has to lift, you know, an Olympic-sized weight, 
And in there, he's, he's lifting it up and he has to hold it for a certain amount of time and he's judged by that. So which weightlifter is the one who bears the full force? Is the one who puts it up but then drops it immediately or one who holds it just for a, a, a quick second and then drops it? Or the one who is able to put it above his head, head stand firmly and then hold it for the uh, required amount of time? It is that one who's the one who bears the full force. The same way we think of a bronco rider who must ride a, a horse that's trying to buck him off for eight seconds. Which one uh, is going to bear the full force? Well, the one who bears it for the whole time. In the same way, Jesus never gave in to temptation. He never sinned. He bore the full force, whereas you and I, many times, we bear that force of sin for a time, but yet then we give in and we feel that release. Uh, many times we may go to the end, but it's only the one who bears it to the end when Satan draws away and we have not succumbed that bears the weight. So in that way, we say that Jesus was tempted beyond we were. With that in mind, we can say that Jesus was tempted may beyond what you and I are tempted. Now, these three affirmations at first can seem very confusing and maybe even to some contradictory. However, we shall see that they really aren't. Luke is not writing of these events to cause us to doubt God's word, but to give us certainty about the life and person of Christ. So to understand this passage, we must understand that Jesus was both God and man. He was not able to sin as God. He was, not, he was, never tempt, or he was tempted to sin, but never sinned as man. At this point, I want to introduce what you and I might think of as a new doctrine, or one that uh, we haven't spoken much about here. And it will help us comprehend uh, these scripture affirmations. It's called the doctrine of impeccability. The doctrine of impeccability. The doctrine of impeccability states that Jesus was not able to sin. Not that he never sinned, but that he was not able to sin. One theologian writes that the union of his human divine nature in one person prevented Jesus from succumbing to the devil's offers and promises. Now, as we have already learned from Luke's gospel, Jesus was both divine and human. Now, this does not mean that he was some type of hybrid godlike man, like Hercules of Greek mythology, or part man and part God. No, scripture informs us that he was truly God, 100% God, and truly man, 100% man. We do read at times that Jesus limited his divinity, but he never put it fully aside. And to understand this passage, Jesus' temptation, in which he's tempted by the devil, it's important to know that the devil's temptations attack Jesus not in his divinity, but in his humanity, since God himself cannot be tempted with evil. R.C. Sproul, a pastor who's now in heaven, notes that trying to tempt Jesus, the son of God, would have been an exercise in futility had he been trying to tempt a divine person to sin. You see, Satan was not trying to get God to sin, he writes. He was trying to get the human nature of Christ to sin so that he would not be qualified to be our Savior, the Messiah, the Prince. Jesus was tempted in every respect as we are, meaning via the desires of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, and the pride of life. However, as Wayne Grumman writes, Jesus met every temptation to sin in the strength of his human nature alone. 
He goes on to write that the moral strength of Jesus, the divine nature, was sort of a backstop that would have prevented him from sinning in any case. And therefore, we can say that it was not possible for him to sin. But he did not rely on the strength of his divine nature to make it easier for him to face temptation. Now, one wonders why Satan even tried to defeat Jesus, knowing that who Jesus was. Well, Pastor Mark Dever asked that question of, why would a proud Satan attempt to lead the Son of God into sin? Well, his answer is pretty simple. Up to this point, Satan's success in tempting humans had been 100%. The 17th century Puritan pastor John Owen remarks that temptations and occasions put nothing into a man. And this is an important distinction. Let me say it once again. Temptations and occasions put nothing into a man. It only draws out what was in him before. And this reflects what James warns us about in James chapter 1, verse 14, that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. So we are tempted by that which is within us. It's an in eternal in pressure that you and I feel when it comes to temptation. However... Jesus' desires were the same as the Father's. Jesus' temptation was an external one that came from outside and to bear down on him. You see, Pastor John Piper, you may recall this from several weeks ago, writes that sin is what you do when you are not satisfied with God. When you and I fall into temptation, when you and I sin, what we're saying is we are not satisfied with your promises. That's what we're, essentially what we're doing. We are not satisfied in God. And there was never, there was never a time when Jesus was not satisfied in the promises of God. He was always satisfied in the Father's plan, in, this, in the Father's promises and provisions. Now, this is hard for us to understand, but this is important for us to wrestle with. And in the end, you and I need to affirm and accept whether we can really ever get a handle on it or not, that Jesus never sinned. He was not able to sin, but yet the temptations were real. Now, as we chew on that, we might ask the question then, if that's the case, why was it even necessary for Jesus to be tempted? Now, this was asked several weeks ago, and I gave a a flippant answer. Well, because the Bible says it so, you know. And, And that's true. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. It was part of the Father's plan. It was his purpose for him to do so. But I want to give you four of them today that are very powerful and I think can be helpful for us to understand what this passage is trying to give us. So with that, why was it necessary for Jesus to be tempted? Well, number one, it was because he was our representative obedience. He was our representative obedience. To complete the redemption plan of the biblical story, You and I needed someone to provide what God required. Remember, what is it that God required? Perfection, perfect obedience to God in our actions and what we do, in our attitudes, the way we think, and in our nature. And you understand that we cannot do that. We we do uh, evil acts. That's because our hearts are evil. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not just what you do, but it's what you think. But we also understand that we cannot change our attitudes by the flesh, by our own uh, uh, creativity or intelligence or willpower, because our nature is affected by that. Our first representative, Adam, we call him the first Adam, he failed. And that failure thrust all of humanity into a cycle of rebellion. 
And in that, it earned the wrath of God. It earned the curse of sin, and it earned the penalty of death. God's plan required a new representative, one that could obey perfectly every one of God's laws and commands. So Jesus came as the second Adam. As Adam represented all of humanity in the beginning, now Christ comes and represents us, those who are God's children. Just as Jesus was baptized, remember he was baptized, not because he needed to repent of any sin and have a cleansing, but he says to fulfill all righteousness, to be a representative who obeys in our stead. So must he endure temptation. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, we read that although he was a son, speaking of the Son of God, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Hence why we say that Jesus had to endure through his human nature. He resisted through his human nature. You see, the Bible has already told us in Luke that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with man and with God. Jesus had to learn as a human just as you and I do. So he learned obedience not through his divinity but through what he suffered. And being made perfect, being found perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. In other words, you and I, uh, are, we receive our righteousness not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ did as our representative. He obeyed and, required, and, and, and provided what God required. In Romans chapter 5, verse 18, we read of this great exchange. It says, as one trespass, speaking of the first Adam, led to condemnation for all man, so one act of righteousness, speaking of the second Adam, Jesus, uh, leads to just, justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the first Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the second Adam, Christ, the many will be made righteous. So we need one who could come and represent us and obey in our stead. And Jesus comes the second Adam to bear our sin and to earn our righteousness. But it was also necessary for Jesus to undergo temptation, to endure it, because he became our substitute sacrifice. He was the substitute sacrifice for our sin. And to serve as our sacrificial substitute, we needed a lamb without blemish or spot. You recall from the Old Testament, the lamb that had to be sacrificed could have no spot or any blemish. The Bible tells us that Jesus was that lamb without blemish or spot. We needed a substitute sacrifice for Scripture because Scripture tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. There must be a death. And as the second Adam, he must pass the testings of God and the temptations of Satan. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 through 18, we read that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and high priest in the service of God, a faithful high priest in the service of God. Why? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. That means to pay our sin, to make favor with God. For because he himself suffered when he tempted, was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He's that substitute sacrifice for us. And then thirdly, it was necessary for Jesus to be tempted, to be the example and pattern of life for you and I. Just as the testings and temptations of ancient children of Israel serves as examples for us today, so does Jesus' life. The Apostle Peter encourages his readers that Christ also suffered for you, 
uh, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. We are to follow in the pattern example of Jesus' life. As he resisted Satan, so are we. As he endured suffering, so are we. Because Jesus was successfully able to resist the devil, we are called to look to him as the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He goes on to write, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's the example and pattern. Why? Because in our struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. We need to endure like the weightlifter, like the bronco rider. We need to endure the full force of the temptation. We need to uh, train ourselves to resist to that point. Then fourthly, it was necessary for Jesus to be tempted so that he may be our sympathetic high priest. Remember, a high priest was one who was a man appointed of God. At first it was Aaron and then his sons. And they would stand before Israel and they would offer up the sacrificial lamb as an offering of worship to God. And then God would give that blessing then and and then the priest would then give the blessing to the people. But he had to do it every year. Not only that, the high priest himself had to offer sacrifices for himself before he could do it for the people. And year after year, that continued. But God's plan of redemption put an end to all that, for he made one sacrifice that was pleasing to God for all time. And this is an important and life-changing truth. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we read this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. In other words, we have one who understands what you and I have to endure. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Yet he is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time and the time and help of need. So you and I need to recognize that we have one now who prays for us, one who can mediate for God for us, who understands our weaknesses, understands uh, what we go through. Because of these four things, you and I now can be triumphant over temptation, but maybe not in the way that you always expect. Colin S. Smith, in his book, The Plan, writes that we can be triumphant over temptation. He writes that Christ's triumph over temptation has huge significance for us. Adam's failure brought misery for us. We understand that our life is marked and we see misery around us. But he goes on to write that he passed on the effects of his failure to all who derived their life from him. And by nature we belong to Adam who failed. We share in that failure. We are under sin. This is what I spoke of earlier. But Christ's triumph over sin, brings hope for us. As Adam passed on the effects of his failure to all who derived their life from him, so Christ passes on the effects of his triumph to all who draw new life from him. And once Paul could say, the life I live, I live in Christ. He goes and writes, to write by grace and through faith we belong to Christ who triumphed we share in his triumph we are under grace in other words we are now forgiven we have a peace with God the weakness of Adam who failed is in you he writes so be on guard against temptation we need to be 
But the strength of God who triumphed is also in you by the Holy Spirit. So when we are tempted, we can stand firm as we remember what Christ has done for us. We can bear more and more that full force of the temptation. And we need to build those spiritual muscles, so to speak, so that we may stand more firm and firm as time comes and goes. Now I want to take a moment to consider what this passage now means to us. This passage over the last four weeks has helped us to understand the purpose behind temptation, God's sovereign purposes, how the devil tempts God's children, his strategy, his schemes, and also how we can resist the devil's temptation. And these are all good points, and they're helpful in our battle against sin and our sanctification journey. However, what we must also understand is that this passage is not about us. We are not Jesus. We are not the Son of God. We are not perfect, or in our, even in our human nature, we are not the second Adam. Yes, it gives us good and helpful tools, but Luke is including this event in his gospel to give his readers certainty about Jesus. This event is meant to give us confidence that Jesus is the Son of the living God, that he's empowered by the Holy Spirit, and he's also the Son of Man, the Prince who was sent to slay the dragon and win the girl. One pastor gives us great insight of how you and I can apply this passage. For Typically we think, well, this is how we need to resist sin, but, and, that, and that's true. But yet there's more to it. This pastor writes, this means that in our temptation, our best strategy is to run to Jesus. He is our strength. He is our shield. He is our high priest who prays and intercedes for us. He is our victory and our confidence. However well we know the word of God, let us not begin to think that we know it so well that we don't need to first flee to Jesus, our high priest who has overcome the tempter on our behalf. Yes, resist, but remember that even when we fail, Jesus is there. And that promise that when we fail, and we know that we will, the Bible tells us that if we repent and confess our sins, that God will just warm us to himself, embrace us to himself. He comes running to us, ready to forgive us. If you're like me, why don't you take a moment to pause and to consider this passage? Would you pray and respond to the Spirit's work? As you consider, many of you, if you're like me, your heart is heavy from the constant battle with sin. That pressure, that force becomes so heavy, so difficult. It seems as if our appetites and our ambitions and our need for acceptance are never content with the promises of God and his providence. We're tempted so many times to seek satisfaction outside of God's provision. And this battle has left us with scars that still affect us today. It has stunted your spiritual growth. It has paralyzed you with shame and guilt and fearing that others may discover your failures and weakness. Maybe even today you're considering giving in to your most base desires, ready to give up fighting against sin and doubting the goodness of God. Let me encourage you this morning, do not despair. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who as our representative has earned the righteousness that we need to have favor with God. As our sacrificial substitute, he has paid the penalty of our sin. There is no longer any condemnation to those that are in Christ. And as our example, uh, he has patterned a life of total dependence on the Father 
and the Spirit for strength. As our, and as our sympathetic high priest, he prays for us. And he gives us confidence that God loves us and accepts us when we repent and confess our sin. Would you come to him this morning? Do not delay. For the closing words, I want to remind you of this song we sung earlier. Not I, yet Christ in me. In it, the chorus says, To this I hold. My hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. We can resist temptation when we look to Christ and trust in his goodness. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. I pray, Father, that you would give all who hear my voice encouragement and confidence, Lord, to continue to resist the devil, that he may flee from us. Give us the strength, the trust in your promises to be satisfied in your, in your, in your providence and your provision. Father, Lord, help us that we would fight to the point of shedding blood, that each and every morning and evening and day, Lord, that we are becoming stronger in our resistance of Satan's ploys against us. And Father, I pray that you would just bless us with your spirit, strengthen us, and Father, above all things, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Until that day that we are brought home, we want to honor and glory you, glorify you in all things. We praise in Christ's name. Thank you for joining us this morning. Until next week, God bless. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever-present in your life.